here and today I'm joined by Andrea Bennett to discuss their book of essays Like a Boy But Not a Boy. Andrea Bennett is a National Magazine award-winning writer and editor. The writing has been published by The Atlantic, The Globe and Mail, The Walrus, Maisonneuve, Hazlitt, Vice, Reader's Digest, and many other outlets. Andrea's first book of poetry, Canoodlers, came out with Nightwood Editions in 2014, and their essay collection, Like a Boy But Not a Boy, was released in October 2020 through Arsenal Pulp Press. Like a Boy But Not a Boy is a revelatory book about gender, mental illness, parenting, mortality, bike mechanics, work, class, and the task of living in a body. Interspersed throughout the book is the 16-part essay entitled Everyone is Sober and No One Can Drive, all about queer millennials who grew up and came of age in small Canadian communities. Before we begin, I will point out that I tend to use the term queer as an all-encompassing one when I'm referring to the LGBTQIA2S plus community in this interview. Uh, I know this isn't always the qualifier used, but for the sake of this conversation, this is what I mean. Hi, Andrea. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. Every time I hear the list of outlets that I've written for that are on my website read aloud, I think like, oh, I really need to shorten that. Um, I'm not going to lie. We also removed quite a few. Embarrassingly long. It does not look ridiculous in print, but when you say it all out loud, it's, yeah, it's embarrassing. Need to shorten it. Anyway. Don't be embarrassed at all. It's amazing. (laughs) They're amazing, fantastic uh, accolades there. Okay, so uh, I want to actually start this interview by saying that reading your book has actually made me... uh, start to examine my own experience as a millennial gay man and really has me thinking about how I identify and relate to that label. Um, I can only imagine that in compiling a book such as this, that you must know in the back of your mind that this is going to impact various people in various ways, queer identifying or otherwise. The question here being, if you had a mission statement for this book, what would that be? That's a good question. Um, I I'm not sure if I had a mission statement for the book exactly, but um, the reason why I included those uh, interstitial essays or those interstitial bits that come together as everyone is sober and no one can drive is that in a sense, the book is kind of my nonlinear, very essay coming of age story is a uh, older queer millennial. And um, I kind of wanted to have, add a chorus of voices uh, who were talking about their own experiences. And I was interested in the ways that those experiences would interact um, and the sort of like plurality of experience, queer experiences um, and how, and in in particular around gender, um, how some of us share certain things or feelings or experiences in common and we diverge in terms of identity and, um, I like that. I like that possibility of, of sharing and divergence. Um, and because, uh, you know, we came of age at a time where by the time that most of us were thinking about getting married, for example, um, same-sex marriage was legalized. And I think that 
in 50 years, we're going to look back and it'll be like, okay, well, there was this before and then there was the after. And that's not how lived experience works at all. Um, And so I wanted to capture that sort of range of things that were happening in the 90s and early 2000s as we were coming of age um, that just kind of gets at the texture of what that period felt like for us when things were changing. Um, But uh, yeah, we're on more of a trajectory than 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 a clear before and after. And I should say that that's not even, that's not everyone's experiences because we're, we're seeing right now sort of like a, I don't know, a new wave of queer related panic, which is trans panic. So um, I'm talking about things as if they're a hunky dory now. I'm not actually, but just in terms of, you know, um, just in terms of the same sex marriage issue, which was, in mainstream media presented as like the issue when we were growing up, I would say. Yeah. You know, I would argue as well that that definitely was a defining point in a lot of our lives as queer millennials, right. Was very much, is this acceptance? Is this how it's going to be going forward from now? So yeah. Okay. I see that. Yeah. It's interesting to think back. um, Those, uh, there are particular, like recurring series of Maury Povich episodes <laughs> that come to mind. And um, this use, I mean, yeah, I used to watch a lot of like daytime TV as I was not going to school because I was a depressed kid who didn't want to go to school. And I distinctly remember like so vividly these episodes where Maury would have um, women parade down the stage as if they were at a beauty pageant but the idea was to guess whether or not the woman was trans or cis. So that was percolating in our cultural imaginary at that point in time. Um, So not to say that there weren't other things happening, but anyway, bananas, I don't know, nineties. The nineties and the two thousands. Yeah. We were all those kids staying at home watching really, really problematic (laughs) Mori episodes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to kind of jump right from that into uh, death. We're going to talk about death uh, because it is really a recurring theme in Like a Boy But Not a Boy. Uh, you talk about your struggles with mortality and with the idea that this is all just going to pass as someone who feels like they have, if not a practical relationship with death, um, then like a very comfortable one uh, coming from my own standpoint. Uh, It was really fascinating for me to read into your mindset. And I don't mean to pick at the scab for lack of a better term, uh, but I think myself and those who have read the book would want to ask how has the last year been for you because I couldn't help but wonder how (laughs) you or if you have found new ways to kind of cope with this mentality with so much like death and bad news is just happening in this news cycle all around us. Yeah. Yeah. My, my answer to that question is like complex. Um, Mm -hmm. On one hand, it has been super nerve wracking for me. I think for uh, a lot of it's probably been nerve wracking for a lot of people who have some sort of simmering anxieties around mortality yeah. and death. Um, even if, uh, even if the pandemic hasn't touched them incredibly personally. Um, and then, you know, for people who the pandemic has touched them personally, they've been dealing with a very real fact of grieving 
at a time when grieving and mourning is complicated, um, even more so than usual. So, and I have lost some older members of my family in the past year. Um, so I've experienced some of that, not from COVID, but COVID impacts the way that the way that we can process, uh, yeah, the way we can process grief, the way we can remember people. If your uh, grieving practices culturally have to do with, you know, in-person wakes or things of that nature, none of that is really possible right now. And for me, it's also complicated by some estrangements in my family. Anyway, um, on top of that, though, there has been the sense that death is in the air. Um, And I am very conscious of the fact that a lot of people in the in different parts of the world live like that all the time. And so part of the reason that this, uh, this past year has been so difficult for me and, you know, other people like me who live in Canada and the U S and, um, I don't know. Uh, it is because yeah, I mean, it's I new. really didn't mean to yeah, like no, bring no. this down either at all. No, you know? it, it's just that it's a complex thing. So I have, it's been so intensely anxious a period for me that I started seeing a counselor again, um, uh, like provincially funded. You can apply to like a mental health uh, assessment team in your community. It's like mental health and addictions uh, and some people in your community qualify to get it and others don't. If you're not ill enough, you don't qualify to get it. It's a problem with our healthcare system thankfully I'm ill enough. I don't know. Anyway, so I'm seeing counselor again. I should say that it has been like permeating my life, but um, you know, at the same time as we were having this, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, which has disproportionately affected uh, racialized people uh, last year, really heated up with police brutality against racialized peoples again. And so um, I don't know. I, I would be curious to hear from someone who, is a part of that community and also lives with generalized anxiety disorder. Um, I do think that part of the reason it's so extra shocking for me is because I have been able to lead this kind of safe-ish life. Um, so there's, I don't know what exactly it is about my brain chemistry that has tilted me in the direction that it's tilted me and that I live with and think about death quite a lot and would prefer not to. I would prefer us to all be immortal. I would prefer us to not have to be touched by death and I would really prefer it to not not have to be disproportionate based along like race and class lines that's a massive mm-hmm. injustice that also literally keeps me up at night um yeah so that is my <laughs> that's my complicated <laughs> neurotic ball of answer to you I don't know I if- mean it was a pretty loaded question to begin with but I just I, I I couldn't help but ask it because I think that's such a kind of like I said a recurring theme and like a really strong vein in in uh, like a boy but not a boy is just kind of you always kind of grappling with that in different ways so I was really just curious as to how how that was impacting you and you know what you're seeing a counselor that's great <laughs> <laughs> yeah um I'm still it's it is one aspect of it I uh I'm working on my garden it's March when we're recording this and on the west coast um things are starting to feel really springy um, and so I built uh, some new trellises and, and uh, buried my peas, what it planted my peas, sorry, <laughs> um, and started some seeds this past weekend. And gardening is one way 
that I try to, I guess, literally ground myself and sort of like the movement of the seasons and the progression of time and all the sort of like wonder and beauty and death and dormancy that comes along with it. I don't know if I'll ever like resolve those feelings as so much as learn to live with them. And I'm not even at that point yet, but yeah. So you do a really good job in this book of taking the subject matter you're discussing and then applying practical journalistic information so that readers can really come up with an informed opinion. It seems like you do this quite effortlessly. And I'm thinking specifically of the essay entitled uh, Milk in Time, in which you relate breastfeeding and milk production to the dairy farming industry. What starts as this classic kind of metaphor, a breast parent often feels like a milking cow is turned on its head. And now we're discussing both the pressure a person feels from the medical and greater parenting community to breastfeed. And then a full critique on the Canadian dairy farming industry, treatment of animals and knowledge about food sources. Are you always a journalist when you're writing? I guess, yeah, probably. Um, In some ways, yeah. So I have training as a journalist um, and as a fact checker and as an editor. And so um, as I'm writing, I'm often thinking, um, well, I'm making associative connections, but then I'm also trying to think about like where my feelings and connections come from. And so reading more broadly or asking myself questions, the same kinds of questions I would ask to someone who filed a piece to me is definitely part of my process. Um, It is also, I mean, coming back to anxiety, one of the ways I deal with anxiety is sort of a, a systemic rationalization. So if I'm afraid of something like evaluating the actual risks and um, doing some research is kind of how I deal with things. So that is also a natural process to me. Um, But I, that essay, I mean, it came about for a bunch of different reasons, but I did sort of think like, as I was um, pumping milk and thinking about how often I'd seen um, people on parenting forums uh, talk negatively about Oh, I feel like such a cow and I have to pump this milk. It's like, why is it, what's so awful about that? Or what's so awful about cows? What's so awful about <laughs> cows feeding us milk? Like that seems actually kind of uh, like a perfectly generous thing that we should be grateful for. Um, and so that's sort of, that was the impetus for that was, um I don't know, what do you call it? Not a devil's ad contrarian. I don't know exactly, but that sort of received wisdom of uh, how you're supposed to feel when you're pumping milk and how you're supposed to, f- how that sort of connection with animalness is supposed to be a negative thing. Like, I'm a human. I'm mm-hmm. so much better than that. I just sort of didn't feel that at my core. And so I guess that was the thing that I was exploring. Why does this feel different to me than it apparently feels to? people on parenting forums. Um, yeah. Well, and then I just, like I pointed out too, I just think you do such a good job of kind of like, like you could have taken this and just left it at that. You know what I mean? Like this is how people are mm. coming across. This is how people are communicating about this specific thing. This is how I feel about it. But instead you fully like, it's a takedown. But <laughs> and, and, I, and I noticed that in just a lot of the different essays as well is really you can start talking about one subject, but then 
you're going to correlate it to something else uh, in a really, really interesting way and in a really, like I said, journalistic way. And I just, I think that's a, that's a great talent and uh, it definitely comes across in the writing. Oh, thank you. Some of my favorite essays do this, uh, you know, better than I do. But um, when I was reading, when I was writing this book, I was reading um, Alexander Chi and Alicia Elliott, um, both mm-hmm. of whom uh, do that type of thing, um, start with their own material as a way of thinking through a broader issue or question. And so, you know, some of what is happening in my book, I just owe to to their examples. In the essay entitled Living with Death, there's a quote. It's possible that I was drawn to true crime because I was seeking an unseekable meaning or narrative structure in death. Perhaps I was drawn to end time beliefs because the fears felt intuitively similar to my own, but came ready-made with an idea of what happened after. I, I can't recall exactly where I had this conversation, but I think it was a virtual launch that we had at the bookstore with Joshua Whitehead when we were discussing Love After the End, uh, which for those of you who don't know is an anthology of post-apocalyptic stories written by queer and two-spirit indigenous folks. Basically, we got to talking about how queer people experience their own personal apocalypses on the regular, almost daily. And hence, we're drawn to these stories more. Uh, What would you have to say or to add to that statement in relation to that quote from Living With Death? I think that's a really interesting point um, that I hadn't previously totally thought about from from that perspective. Um, But, like, it resonates with me, yeah, because I have always been searching for the reason why I'm drawn to things like this and um, have always thought, well, maybe it's partially inexplicable, but living with death was kind of trying to get to the bottom was me trying to get to the bottom of that question. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, definitely. I would say that um, like as a white queer person, that probably I'm not exactly facing the same pressures as the folks who are writing for love after the end are facing. Um, There is a sort of, um, I don't know, endings and beginnings. uh, The idea of ending and endings and beginnings in my life is, is resonant though. Um, In the everyone is sober and no one can drive essay. One of the things I was curious about was, Uh, how many other people had felt like they had to sort of flee their hometowns in order to be able to be themselves. Um, And that's definitely, I mean, I moved out just the absolute second I could. I graduated high school early so that I could leave. Um, And then I did feel as soon as I arrived somewhere else that um, I could sort of leave the baggage of what everyone in my childhood had thought about me behind. Um, And I am like fully estranged from the maternal side of my family for a lot of complicated reasons, but that's a pretty common experience uh, for uh, queer people to be, uh, to have these fissures in their families of origin. I am close to the paternal side of my family, but it is interesting to sort of lose an entire, like, like an iceberg just calving off and, disappearing and that is a that is an apocalypse in itself right mm-hmm. that is a world ending 
moment in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, just to say also, everything you just said is also my queer experience is uh, kind of leaving my hometown when I was 17 years old, as soon as I finished high school, as soon mm-hmm. as I could, coming to downtown Montreal and moving there and kind of just like feeling free to express myself, right? So it is really like, resonant uh, a lot of the things that you talk about in the book and a lot of the things that you talk about now you know I love the I wanted to talk to people who had stayed as well and um, because that's Mm, a mm -hmm. different that's a different life experience and some people do feel like such a strong connection to their birthplace and to their family of origin and they choose to navigate it in a different way and so I was also just sort of interested in in narratives that didn't align with my previous understandings or um, I guess like assumptions in a way about how, how we, how we dealt with the pressures of growing up in the time and the place that we did. Um, So just kind of also following up on this question, just in general, I have really become like kind of the same as you were just saying, I become kind of obsessed with this idea that those of us within the LGBTQIA plus community also like to hone our relationships with the macabre and the apocalyptic. And Like a Boy But Not a Boy also discusses a lot of the differences between our generation and the ones coming next who seem to have a lot more or maybe a different kind of freedom of expression that we might not have had or felt more reserved about, you know, outwardly showing. Do you think we're about to have a generation of young people who find themselves actually and accurately represented and therefore aren't going to have to rely on fringe media the way that we might have had to? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I think that it's, it's interesting to look at the generations who came before us um, when uh, queerness was like far more stigmatized and, um, and, you know, it wasn't that long before us that almost an entire generation of gay men were near wiped out. Like that's pretty intense. Yeah. And so the jump from that to, where we're at is a pretty huge jump. Um, and I think there is another probably pretty large jump for the, for kids who are coming of age now. And, um, and I welcome that. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So, um, I've been lucky enough to write for extra a few times and I love extra. And I think one of the things that happen that is happening is that queer media, um, I'm also thinking of Autostraddle and them in the U.S. Um, that they're not so fringe anymore. Mm-hmm. That is one yeah. thing that's happening. So, uh, and I think that that's kind of cool. Um, I think that mainstream media still tends to approach our stories from sort of like an identity rooted kind of place. Um uh, and it'll take a while to shift that. Um, and, you know, we have certain ideas about how narratives are supposed to go for queer people. And it's harder to break out of that or harder to write for an audience that is not, I don't know, your average middle class, white, cis, hetero Canadian uh, when you're writing for some outlets. Um, and you don't, I don't know, the the better stories are the deeper stories that aren't necessarily pitched at a one-on-one level. 
Um, but I do think that that's changing and there is buy-in from some editors and there has been, you know, there are queer editors who work at, at mainstream places now. Although in Canada, you know, um, I have like a couple non-binary editor friends and uh, I, we can probably name like every single non-binary editor in Canada. <laughs> I think that's come up a couple times, every trans editor in Canada. And so uh, things will only really have changed when that's no longer the case. Like yeah. if you hear some hot gossip about another trans editor and you're like, well, it's not so-and-so, so it must be. It's like <laughs> the, the world is still too small at that point. So anyway. So no big shift yet. No, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're on a path. We're on a path. Okay. There is a moment in uh, Dinaj's essay where in reference to queer theorist Didier Arabon, she states, uh, we are formed as queer subjects potentially before we even know that we are. We're named before we name ourselves in many ways, but this naming is often meant to be derogatory, meant as insult. It seems as if you, Andrea, and the community at large are trying more and more, more and more to claim our own space and identity as we wish to be seen and spoken of, but also, for instance, as a non-binary parent, naming you mom has these problematic implications and seems like it might just have to be something that you would, quote, kind of have to live with. Um, in what ways are you still personally pushing against this and has it gotten easier? And is this your form or a form, rather, of queer resistance? Yeah, I think what Dinesh is talking about is that moment that many of us had as like kids, for example, or teens, when we're like walking, because many of us don't drive, um, like walking <laughs> down the like main street of our small town or our city or whatever, and some car full of pickup, or uh, pickup truck full of dudes like drives by and yells a homophobic slur. Um, perhaps even before you've started to have certain realizations about yourself, that you're hearing like slurs applied to you. Um, and then kind of processing them and not sitting with them. And so maybe part of the reason, or maybe part of the way that you first learn about yourself is through that space of the derogatory. Um, and then um, like being misgendered is like a different type of thing. That's almost like the derogatory, I think like the, the perverse thing about it is that it is a form of recognition that is just like a shitty form of recognition. And then being misgendered is like um, uh, a different thing. It can also be a type of recognition. Um, like for example, if someone is anxious about one's non-conforming gender and then uses a lot of like gender terms to kind of like shore up the way that they'd like to see your gender, like you're such a handsome boy or pretty girl, that yeah. type of thing. Um, I guess that can be a type of recognition too, um, just in a really weird way. Um, but the, I would say it is sort of parenting for me that brings up a lot of these issues uh, now as, a, as an adult. Um, and I mean the pronoun thing too. I just sort of semi-recently decided to opt only with they and them. And I think that it's something I toyed with for a long time. Um, in part, I was thinking if I went with they and them, would it help people conceive of me, um, like remember that I'm non-binary and stop calling me the parenting terms that make me feel like really, really uncomfortable. Um, yeah. 
And then, but then in, on the flip side of that, it's like, all right, if I've been specifically asking people to call me they, them, um, and they keep hitting that like she button, well, that's going to be like mm-hmm. another layer of things suck because no one is, it's like, they're not respecting my gender or they see me in a way that is different from the way that I see myself. And I either have to, I have to come term, I have to come to terms with that. Like, uh, oh, those people don't see me the way that I would like to see myself. Or on the flip side, I'm a huge fraud is like the other thing that can happen when one is like misgendered constantly. So, um, and if anyone else felt like that, like I'd be like, that's bananas, but I don't know, I'm very anxious. And so uh, that is part of the process of things that happens in my head. So I do wish that we had kinship terms that were in English in like, Western English that were uh, inclusive of non-binary people and trans people and people have been coining them. Um, I don't particularly like any of the parent ones personally, like for myself. Um, I like the way Baba sounds, but it's grandmother in some languages and father and others. And so um, it just didn't feel quite right. Uh, so anyway, my kid calls us by our first names and we just, uh, I don't know, are reinforcing with her preschool that we're her parents. Um, and that's about where that is. So I, I don't know, I do brush up against it quite a lot. Um, anyone who has they, them <laughs> pronouns brushes up against it quite a lot. I don't know, all trans people do. Uh, and, you know, the pandemic has made things kind of more interesting being masked um Mm -hmm. takes away like an added layer of how people are read in the world that can either be freeing or um the opposite of freeing people get misgendered more more frequently slightly debilitating right yeah so anyway it's my complicated answer to that question (laughs) i love your complicated answers andrea in the last line of Ben's essay, um, you write, queer identity is inherently destabilizing, uh, even if sometimes what's being destabilized is queer identity. This reminded me of something I think about often, which is that gender theory is forever changing. Uh, there can be no one way to think about gender identity as it's always this kind of evolving creature and process. So it may be difficult to know exactly what needs to be destabilized at what times. So bringing up this generational divide that is regularly referred to throughout the book's essays, specifically we're talking about queer millennials versus Gen Z. Um, do you see any ways in which queer identity may actually be stabilizing itself or should queerdom always be as ben says inherently destabilizing i'm so glad uh just i just want to say i'm so glad you hit on that quote that dinesh of dinesh's and this quote of ben's which is like one of my favorite in the book um ben is like a a close friend of mine and when he said that I was like write it down writing it down I would also just say as a side note like I never write I never like dog ear pages in books this is probably the first book in 10 years where like my copy is just underlined paragraphs are highlighted I yeah 
Sorry, continue. That's amazing. <laughs> um, I think that probably queer identity will always be in a state of flux and uh, destabilization and, and things of that nature. I mean, at the top of this interview, um, you said that we would be using the term queer and like explain why and, and like in what context it was going to be used. And that is sort of like a, you know, uh, a terminology is a bit of a flashpoint between generations um, yeah. and like a site of, I guess, misunderstanding or things of that nature. But to, I was born in 1984 and certainly like people 10, 20 years older than me and, and you know, myself also. A queer is a term of power. Um, you know, it's an inherently political term. It's a term that people chose to take up um and uh it's interesting to see some younger folks um just sort of well uh connecting more with the idea of it as a slur than the sort of uh political force of reclamation mm -hmm. and i think that that signals uh, probably like a bit of a shift in, well, it signals a shift in culture. It signals that we don't exactly have the same roots or the same understandings of what it means to be a queer person in North America. Um, and I think that we all have a lot to learn from each other. Um, I don't think, you know, um, I don't think that uh, queer millennials are like inherently more, I don't know, um, inherently like wiser or better or something like that because we've gone through periods that are like difficult. I think that that mm -hmm. is like kind of a silly idea um, uh, that we've earned our identity more than the younger folks because they haven't had to live through the same shitty things. I think that's like a super, you know, problematic potential starting point. Like talk to me when you've had a milkshake thrown at you. But I do think that there, there, is, there are a lot of opportunities for understanding that, uh, that could be happening. I think it's Dinesh that talks about that too. Like the idea that um, um, in a sense, like somewhat the mainstreaming of queer culture does mean that you, that we have lost like some of those spaces that were gathering places for multiple generations of people which is also in itself a complicated thing because lots of queer people had negative experiences when they went first went to the gay bar at 17 and some older person hit on them and it wasn't exactly what they needed at that time but um all that to say i think the main way that i feel about it is that we have a lot to learn that we have a lot to learn from each other and i wish that we could do that uh and that's going to mean discomfort mm -hmm. So you mean discomfort because we have different life experiences and bring different things to the table. And, um, you know, we can see this with some people in the generation that's older than us just being like, why, you know, why do you have to, why do you have to press the trans issue so hard or things of that nature? Like we fought so hard to be here and now you're making it hard again. I don't know. That's an oversimplification, but, um, I don't know. I think I probably welcome being like dethroned as the like <laughs> queer the generation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, a, it's a natural process. And I have a lot to, of things to learn from someone who grew up in a place and time that 
you know, they're the, the way that they learned that they were queer was, was not having that milkshake thrown at them, you know? Exactly. So, yeah. um, I'm sort of all years, but hundred percent, like we'll still refer to myself as queer. Like I'm not, we can have a conversation about that, but I'm not giving that up. Yeah. The 16 part essay interspersed throughout the book, everyone is sober and no one can drive. I think is such, such a good way to connect to the audience that you're writing for. Uh, these essays are each titled after their subject. So you have Erica, Ben, Soroya, Nadine, and really are these bite-sized biographies of queer millennials across the country who were mostly raised in either rural or suburban areas. I do tend to read a lot of queer literature and stories, but these ones, to use an expression from the kids, hit different. Mm-hmm. Um, how did this part of the project come to fruition? And was this like an open call for participants? What was the selection process like? I mean, you said uh, when I quoted Ben that you know Ben. Ben's mm-hmm. one of your friends. Yeah, I know a few of the people. And then um, I know uh, Erica, Aaron, and Ben, I think, are the... I might be it's been a while since I filed this book um so if I'm forgetting any of my friends I hope they will forgive me (laughs) but uh I put out a call on Twitter oh I know John Elizabeth Cincy a little bit also but kind of in like writer writer nerd way um anyway I put out a call on Twitter uh I wanted to ask people really nosy questions about their life stories. And so I figured that it was better to have people come forward, people who wanted to share. Um, and then, and then haranguing my friends about it. Um, Cause I don't know, that's something one is allowed to do, but yeah. So as, a, and a, as opposed to approaching people, that is the way I chose to go about it. Um, I also, I knew I wasn't going to be, um, I knew I, well, I kind of knew I wanted to keep them separate, but when you interview someone, I had, I interviewed people, I had the interviews transcribed and then I shifted to third person and condensed them. And so, um, there's sort of like an interaction there between, uh, letting each story sound on its own, having someone tell their story, but then I am doing this like editorial narrative work that is shaping someone's narrative a bit, even as I'm using like using their words. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's why I put out a call instead of emailing, cold emailing people. I just wanted them to sort of have like a buy-in and, and to want to share their stories, but that comes along with its own, um, set of drawbacks because the only people who are going to see that call are people who are in my network and then like the networks of people who retweeted that call. So, um, you know, probably as a white person, that network is going to like look whiter than mm-hmm. if I had chosen to like approach people. So there were a lot of complicated questions that came up, um, but I ultimately decided to do it the way that I did it uh, because I wanted people to want to share as opposed to feeling like I was sort of like extracting their stories from them. Did you kind of know going into this project that that's what you wanted to have? Like this is because I would argue that it is somewhat of a glue to the whole book. You know what I mean? It's these kind of 16 patchwork almost essays. Just like tell me a little bit about that and what you wanted to do specifically. Yeah. um, So before I wrote nonfiction, I was a poet and um, 
a poetic attempt to structure is like is different than the nonfiction attempt or a, approach to structure. So, uh, um, I think that probably informed the way that I was thinking about the possibilities for those segments. Um, I did think about making a long essay where I would have sort of highlighted points in the transcription where where people could be in conversation either because they were saying similar things or because they were saying things that were different in a, in a way that would have like interacted well with each other, basically like building any sort of nonfiction story. Um, it's a little difficult to do that with like 16 different individual coming of age <laughs> stories. Um, and I also kind of didn't want to flatten people's stories. And I, it occurred mm -hmm. to me that I could that I could use them instead like little interstitials and that um, they could sort of be like a pause between my essays and that hopefully doing it that way would allow them to come together as sort of like a chorus. I hadn't fully decided on what I was doing. Uh, I think when the book was like, it was purchased as a proposal. Um, it was something I'd left in the air and then kind of worked through in the year that I was writing it and just landed here. Um, yeah, I wanted everyone's voices to kind of be able to stand on their own. Um, and that, that is why I landed where I did. I didn't want to exert the narrative control to shape things into like a mega transformer essay. Like this is what it was like to grow up as a queer millennial. I decided to just let things stand and, and hopefully I'd hoped like over the course of reading a book that the reader would let some of those, the different associations would bubble to the surface for different people. And yeah. that would resonate differently with different people. I have had like wildly different feedback from um, non-queer people than I have from queer people for this section of the book. I've had like really positive feedback from queer people for the most part. And then I'd say like generally folks who are readers who are a little bit older and who are not queer are like, I can't keep everyone straight. Why? I don't know. <laughs> it's like a, sort of more of like a, I don't know, not understanding why, why that section of the book is there, um, which like fair enough, but, but I, again, it, I wouldn't change it. So. No, no, fair enough. But I mean, that's also kind of just jarring for me to hear because I, I mean, like you said, like sort of the queer people that you've spoken to about it have definitely resonated with them. And I think like they resonated with me so much. I, every time I got to a new one, it was just like, all right, how am I going to see myself reflected in this essay right now? Mm -hmm. And like, sure enough, I did. There was always something. Um, yeah, I, I loved it. I, but yeah, I am jarred <laughs> I think <laughs> to hear that, that. I think I'm not 100% sure, but I think that part of what people uh, want when they pick up a book that is outside of their experience is to have a legible experience given to them mm -hmm. that they can fully understand when you're giving people like bits of complex uh, stories and just saying like, okay, here's how things are. Here's the complexity of the landscape. There's kind of like no one like, okay, I read this book. And so now I can say that X is true and Y is true and Z is true. Like I personally wanted to sort of avoid that. So, yeah. but for some people that's going to be frustrating. That would be, that would be my guess for, for some of the folks who felt that way. Um, 
which like fair enough. The essay on class and writing um, especially was just an absolute treat for me to read. And I imagine any anti-capitalist bookseller or author to read the opening line alone. My shift at the Montreal downtown location of the big <laughs> box store started nightly at 10 or 11 PM was so funny to me mm-hmm. because that's like when I escaped home at 17, it was to go to that chapters on St. Catherine. (laughs) I'm only assuming that's the one you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, But in this essay, you talk, you're mainly talking about class division within the book industry at large. And then in these even smaller queered and racialized literary circles. um, And then even in relation to the greater literary world. And even outside of that, there is this kind of prestige and class division. Once you get into these literary circles, Um, I'm having more and more conversations within these small, queer, racialized bookselling circles about a kind of collective shift that we are all kind of starting to feel after last year. And I mean, for us, just an example in diversifying our content, in working with authors to promote their content, making sure we're paying self-published authors a fair percentage of sales, etc., On top of that, it seems as if neighborhoods are slowly becoming more aware of gentrification and the damage is caused by Amazon. They're seeing that there's real value in kind of spending money at local establishments and with local authors that are going to give back directly to the community. This is a two-part question. Um, Have you seen or felt this shift as well? And what do you think is necessary for a future in which we can all talk openly about financial struggle, fluctuating prestige, and being able to demand more for our Canadian authors, queered or otherwise? So I think that the last year has been really... uh, There are a lot of things happening, um, both with the pandemic and then um, those instances of police brutality uh, that, and just a lot of uh, fallout from that about just how white and racist the publishing industry can be. Yeah. Um, So um, in terms of the pandemic, Book sales on Amazon have gone up, but I think book sales from uh, like online book sales directly from publishers and from indie bookstores have also gone up. And um, I have had some people write to me to ask me, like, what's the best place? What benefits you the most as an author in terms of like where I buy your book? And so those are interesting questions that I think people are asking in part because of uh, organizing around Amazon and their awful labor practices. Um, Oh no, am I suable now? (laughs) No, I think that's a checkable fact. (laughs) I think that's a checkable fact. Um, So uh, I don't know. Yeah, I think that that is another thing that is slowly changing. I think that there needs to be uh, structural change as opposed to just, um, you know, hiring one or two people who aren't white. Uh, if you hire, if that's kind of the way that you're hoping your change will happen and they're coming in at like a lower level or a mid-level position, or they're coming in as someone you're like, all right, we've had a 40 year history of 
sort of biased publishing choices. And (laughs) now we're going to hire an acquiring editor and they're going to fix everything. (laughs) Like, like you can't do that to someone. And, but that it has sort of been the approach. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, the person who's put in that position, it's extremely hard now to get burnt out and they're constantly having to balance dealing with like microaggressions in the workplace or like, I don't know, what is it to put your talents and effort into doing uh, some great acquisition and then you're also publishing, for example, and and this is like not a real life uh, example in the sense that I'm not thinking of anyone in particular and I'm like, you're doing this great acquisition. but And then to have your publisher bring on like Jordan Peterson's second book or something or um, any number of the sort of less famous but still prominently publishing people who are publishing kind of uh, uh, problematic, I don't know, books that are... Yeah, I would say problematic content. Books that are difficult for... Uh, editors and copy editors and publicists to work on and throw their efforts behind. Um, that that's 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 a difficult that's a difficult thing to navigate. Um, and even if you have the most energy in the world, it's extremely hard to be that sort of like unicorn person to like, hello, welcome. Uh, we believe in you. You're going to change everything for us that can only lead to disappointment, I would have to say, especially if you don't have the support within the organization to make those changes. Um, so, so there's that. Um, what structural change looks like in publishing? That's an in- interesting question. Um, it is when people are able to start things for themselves, that can often make such a huge difference it takes like such a special set of person people to be able to do that. And so one thing that I think about, I think about like the growing room festival and like the room collective on the West coast. Um, And I also think about the fold festival in Brampton as just like two amazing examples of things that people have been able to do that are, um, that are super cool. And I love those festivals Um, and they just have like a different feeling to them. Um, I do think that, uh, you know, some people in positions of power are starting to think about things differently and that's good. And there's just going to be a long, there will be long periods of learning for those people and there are going to be mistakes and, uh, painful periods. And, uh, I often personally think about the, the younger folks, who want to work in publishing, who are just going to be kind of like chewed through as things change. And I hate that, but that's the sort of like, well, I, maybe it's the pessimistic side of my personality, but it also, I think that it's true and there should be sort of options for those people and care for them. And people should be like shepherded through and we should be recognizing people's talents and giving them opportunities to grow. And so often publishing works on this sort of like scarcity model where it feels like, well, if I recognize someone else's talents and I help them get better, then maybe they'll replace me and I'll be back working at the big box bookstore. <laughs> I don't, don't want to do that. Um, I don't know. 
Um, like, what do you think is going to be necessary for us to have this future where we can talk openly about financial struggle uh, within the literary communities and fluctuating prestige is something that you kind of mentioned as well in uh, on class and writing and just kind of demanding more for our Canadian authors in general? Yeah, I think when people who have more power are, are candid and like open, that is one thing that helps because, um, you know, if you are relatively powerful powerless and you have to constantly be the person who's like making the trouble or like being candid, then uh, it's difficult um, and sort of friendless. So people who do have like bits of power, if they could be like more candid about things. Um, And then, yeah, yeah. Structurally things have to change. Um, You know, the, if you think about just like panels and literary festivals, uh, the sort of like the idea of the diversity panel um, is like a very, I don't know, 10 years ago thing. That is a way yeah. in which things have to change. Like have people of color at your festival talking about their work and answering those like craft questions that all the older dudes get to answer. Build your panels differently. Just like make sure that you have diversity in your festival that is not summed up by one panel that is like, what's it like to not be white in Canada? Um, <laughs> uh, and just, but publishing, you know, I think that, that events wise, it is actually a little bit easier than, than, than like changing the entire sort of like beast of publishing, which is a thing that is built through connections and nepotism and, um, I don't know, lots of inner workings that don't become clear until you're sort of in the middle of it. Um, And you can't get into the middle of it without someone sort of bringing you into the middle of it. Um, Without that nepotism. Yeah. So uh, that's going to be a longer, a longer process of change. Um, The publisher where I work has had for a long time, a mandate of publishing um, works that folk that are written by indigenous authors and about indigenous indigenous issues even though that's the case though it's only been in the last I don't there's still so much growing that the publisher has been doing around um, language and copy editing and editing and acquisition and things of that nature so um, that is another thing like even publishers that have had mandates that are for social justice or that have focused on um, uh, certain publishing topics, there's still a ton of growth for for all of those publishers to be doing. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I hope I hit like a tone that was sort of equal parts like hopeful and uh, chastising. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really know. I was really lucky to publish with Arsenal Pulp. I love the work that they publish, and um, I don't know. I knew that it would be amazing to publish a queer book with them. I wouldn't. There would be certain questions I probably wouldn't have to answer that I might have to answer somewhere else, or um, certain decisions I'd be allowed to make that maybe I wouldn't be allowed to make somewhere else, and. Um, just even seeing my book alongside, like on the website alongside some of the other books is just like such a warming thing. So I don't know. Yeah. Cultivating a community of authors that 
wants to publish with you is also another thing to do. But it's authors are such an interesting power wise is such an interesting question, like whether or not you have any as an author. I mean, fair enough. What, do I have any power as a bookseller? You know what I mean? Yeah. Is it just all for naught? Like how are, how are our voices kind of being used in this bigger landscape is, is always something that's in the back of my head for sure. I do think that this, it's like a little bit of a particularly Canadian thing because um, even like, like midlist authors, for example, who, who emerging writers might look up to and say like, oh, this is the career that I want. This person is doing so well. They go to so many festivals um, if that person doesn't have like family money or a spouse that makes money or whatever, they, they may still be getting the same sort of like publishing jerk around that is common earlier in your, their career. They may only be grossing like $40,000. You never know. So that person yeah. has relatively a bunch of power, but from their, from, from like their perspective, it's just like, well, I'm still cobbling together a living and it still kind of sucks. So I think that is part of the like wrench that gets thrown into things. And part of the reason why, you know, when someone is called out for having said something like that other people find shitty, um, you know, I think that part of the reason that people get their hackles up is because they are still experiencing the same sort of bumps in the road of publishing that, uh, that are only viewable from the inside. I don't think that that means that people should uh, respond defensively. Uh, it's just about understanding the nuances of power, like from the internal perspective of of having, of having some, um, but what does that mean in Canada? It still doesn't mean a whole lot. I don't know. Universal basic income, more, in, more money for everyone. I don't really know what the millions of arts grants. Um, <laughs> I don't know. More economic security would be, would be nice. Um, I guess is one way to go about beginning to solve that problem. Yeah, definitely. Like you said, thousands and thousands of more art grants. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's really that's really that's really it for today, Andrea. Um, I'd really really love to thank you for coming on here with us today. Um, the book was amazing. Again, I just want to say how much I personally loved it, and it's like I said, highlighted and underlined and post-it noted all over. And I'll be thinking about it a lot more in the future, I'm sure. Um, everybody, you can pick up "Like a Boy but Not a Boy" by Andrea Bennett at St. Henry Books now. And again, thank you, Andrea. Thanks so much. Thank you.